Welcome to the Authentically Human with Hannah podcast, where we dive deep beneath the surface of what it means to be a human having this unique human experience. I'm your host, Hannah Skipsey, an intuitive human design coach with a passion for helping others come home to their truest, most authentic selves. This is a space for real conversation and unapologetic truth when it comes to the intricacies, nuance and contrast of this one beautiful life. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to episode five of Authentically Human with Hannah. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you yet again. I have been truly overwhelmed with the messages of support I've received since beginning this podcast. It's certainly not an easy thing to put yourself out there and to show up as your vulnerable self uh, in front of anyone. (laughs) I mean, anyone can download this podcast and, and hear my thoughts and hear my story and I show up in this way because I feel that there just isn't enough of it and that we need to have these conversations. We need to talk about the things that are taboo and not spoken about enough in our society because I think in doing so we will build much needed connection and community with one another, which I think we are all lacking in some way, shape or form in the world that we live in today. So I just want to thank you for holding that space for me and for joining me on this exciting adventure. Um, Yeah, it does mean a lot to me. And today's guest is a beautiful, beautiful friend who I connected with many years ago. And interviewing people like my guest today is why I decided to begin this podcast. There are so many people out there with fabulous, incredible stories and experiences and inspiration that I think really need a platform and really need to be heard. And the gorgeous Alice Paulson, my beautiful friend of a few years now, is my guest today and she is just a a bright shining light in this world. She's very humble, uh, but she brings so much wisdom to the table. And I just think today's conversation is really going to be one that gets people thinking and perhaps helps others understand that there are different avenues and alternative ways of viewing Um, health challenges or diagnoses that they may not have thought of before. So the gorgeous Alison is a Melillo Method practitioner. 
and she practices on the beautiful Sunshine Coast uh, alongside Refocus, which is actually an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander First Nations service. So here in this space, Alice and her colleagues have actually created something called the Resilience Hub, which is essentially a holistic healing space combining the traditional allopathic medicine model, so the, the medical model we we all know very well, and the, in quotation marks, alternative therapies. And we do talk about that term, alternative therapies, in this discussion because while they may be labelled as alternative, they are certainly backed by science and this is not emerging science um, and it is really the reason why we, we needed to have this conversation today because methods like the Melillo method is unfortunately something that not many of us have heard of and is potentially something that could help so many. So on top of the Resilience Hub, Alice also works at Nurturing Brain Potential. So here she works alongside Dr. Genevieve as a Malelo Method practitioner. So when Alice is outside of the clinic, she is a mum to two amazing girls. She's been married to Troy, her best friend, for 19 years. And when she's not parenting or working, she is either paddling on the water, she's walking the beautiful sunny coast beaches, or she's hitting the gym or the yoga mat. So Alice uses movement as her life anchor, which I love. And she talks more about that in the episode today. And she's just super passionate about helping as many people find brain balance and healing via movement and different integrative therapies. So I really hope that you enjoy today's episode. We talk about all the things from neurodivergence and neurotypical the neurotypical brains. We talk about diagnoses such as ADHD and the three different types of ADHD, OCD, autism, uh, tics, uh, complex pain, so that there's just an abundance of information in this episode. And I know Alice has tried to make it as uncomplicated as possible. It is a very complicated topic, but it is a method that has worked wonders for for so many people around the world. And you'll hear Alice's own story with her daughter and and how the Melillo method has been a godsend for their own situation. Um, in, in complex pain. So without further ado, let's get this episode happening. All right, here we are. Welcome, Hello. Alice. Thank you. Oh my goodness, <laughs> it's been so long since we have it had has. a conversation. <laughs> in a little minute. It has <laughs> been. 
Um, I have been busting to get you on as a podcast guest, as you know, um, because I just feel like you have so much to share. And I know that you've done a lot of study and you've learned all sorts of things in the past couple of years, which I just think so many more people need to hear about because it definitely opened my eyes when I started to see what you were doing and learning a little bit about it myself. Yeah. Um, So I might just hand it over to you and if you could maybe just share a little bit about yourself and how you came to become a qualified Melillo Method practitioner. Okay. (laughs) Well, well, so we're going to go back five years. Um, So my eldest developed pain syndrome called complex regional pain syndrome. So CRPS for short. So when that was happening, we were going through, you know, the traditional allopathic system of pain clinics, um, doctor after doctor after doctor, specialist after pain specialist. And it kind of got to a point where no one could really explain what was really happening. They kind of explained these pain gates through the body and through the, the spinal cord coming up to the brain, but no one could actually explain why. Like, why did this happen? You know, we'd kind of known that our daughter was struggling. Um, We didn't understand the extent, but Mm. in a nutshell, when she was going through this pain, call it a pain period, um, I started really researching and nothing really made sense. What we were being told about what was happening with her body made sense to us. We were just like, okay, well, but okay. So A, to overcome something, you have to understand why, like mm-hmm. what, what is, what is the fundamental issue? So the research we were finding was um, to overcome pain, you have to go through pain. And that's basically what we we're told. It is barbaric. They do, wow. let alone to do this to a child. So to give some understanding of complex pain, everyone's experience is different um, for our I have permission to share this for our 10 year old, her, her left foot felt like it was in a deep fryer and anytime air would touch it, if a feather would touch it, if just, you know, a raindrop, it would set off this pain experience where it was so overwhelming. She wanted to leave. She didn't want to be here. Um, So CRPS is known as a suicide disease for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and most people who develop it, unfortunately, because the medical system doesn't understand it effectively, um, it can progress quite, quite mm-hmm. often. Um, and then from there, it can become life-threatening because the level of pain, it is the worst pain state scale. Um, so the McGill pain scale, it is the worst pain a human can endure. Um, so when that was happening, I just... I was on Instagram, like of social media. I say this to people all the time that social media is amazing and it has a great place. Mm-hmm. It can connect people. It can help you find things that work in health. Um, for us, I stumbled across Melilla Method. Um, I used to follow a, well, I still do, a Pilates instructor in the States named Laura Pilates and her husband had an acquired brain injury. Um, actually, it was a traumatic brain injury. He was in a car accident. 
nothing was kind of working. And then all of a sudden one day she pops up on her Instagram saying, this incredible doctor has come into our life. <clears throat> um, he's doing this Melillo method. There was all these hashtag Melillo methods. So I started Googling and looking into Melillo method and what I was seeing was phenomenal. I was like, well, if this is working for, you know, a traumatic brain injury, if this is working for autistic population, if this is working for OCD and Tourette's, like the more I looked into it, the more I'm like, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so started looking more into that, read Dr. Melillo's book, Disconnected Kids, started applying that in conjunction with pain therapies. Um, so within six weeks, our daughter overcame complex pain. Wow. Um so it's it's pretty powerful what this what this method can do. Um, it's incredible. I studied it. Yeah, I yeah, just went I, on and sat the course. I was like, okay, you know, everyone needs to know this. Mm, yeah, I can't even imagine what you went through as a parent. Yeah, it wasn't what fun. she went through. Yeah, yeah. And then you have you know doctors questioning your integrity as well. On top of that, especially when you start helping your child overcome pain. They start Mm. questioning the legitimacy of the experience that your child's gone through, questioning your child, questioning your sanity. You know, you have had a um, pediatrician say you facilitated your child's condition. Wow. Um, Yeah. Anyone going through any kind of trauma like that, um, where every day is a struggle, the last thing you need is a specialist you know, red mm. her words, red flagging you to the hospital system um, because oh, you're God. you're asking questions, you're challenging what you're being told, you're asking why, mm-hmm. you're you're asking okay, well if this is in your words a a long term health issue, and we can't walk, she's in a wheelchair, she can't walk. Like, can we get a wheelchair sticker? And apparently that was enough for her to you know turn around and say okay well I'm going to flag you and you're facilitating a child's condition so it was yeah it's very traumatic I'm, I'm not going to lie um mm, it's taken years to overcome the anxiety that came from that and our whole family as you know the unit we've all been disrupted and we've been put on a different path mm. um but we're choosing to see it as a healthier path and a path that's going to help other people as well um it takes a lot of courage yeah. um yeah you know true, when you've true. you've got <laughs> you know obviously she had something that the traditional medical world wasn't able to yeah. come up with answers for so you do what any parent would do and you would search for answers yeah and when you find something that actually works and you're being told yeah wow, and you're being questioned yeah um that takes yeah. a lot of courage to back yourself and to go down that that method despite being told that you yeah you know you've lost the plot that you're yeah. aiding and abetting yeah. as <laughs> yeah yeah ridiculous. I, I, I still the other day I was actually thinking about that phone call I hadn't thought about it in years and I just I, it just blows my mind. And I just think, you know, I know other parents um, have this thrown at them as well. Um, Just talking to parents weekly, you know, the things their children experience. And, you know, if the parent dares to ask a certain question about, you know, is it gut health or is it, 
you know, is there mm-hmm. a nervous system dysregulation underlying? If if you ask these, that it just seems to it. Mm. There's not enough knowledge in in the allopathic, the traditional model. They're getting there, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I know. mean, yeah, this is. I was a registered nurse for many years. Yeah, yeah. When I started to see, you know, that you know we were obviously dosing people up with antibiotics, and that you know we need antibiotics. I'm not saying that we Absolutely. don't, yeah. but we yeah. also need to have a conversation about gut health and what that's doing to your gut. Um, yeah, and any mention of you know, probiotics or, um, you know, ways that we can replenish that good gut bacteria after, you know, two weeks of hardcore antibiotics. Like that was just, you know, stupid talk. So, yeah, yeah, it's a shame that we can't have these open conversations. Um, But that's why I think that yeah, I wanted to have you on here today so that you can share that story yeah, and hopefully help other parents that are yeah. feeling lost in the system yeah. as well. Yeah. Can I know this is probably going to be difficult, but can you mm. explain what the Malelo method actually is? Yeah. Yeah. So we look at the brain from a very different perspective. So we're looking at the brain from, we call it the developmental blueprint. So when we develop in utero, there are certain levels that the brain grows and develops. When we come out into the world, the brain grows and develops. And then as we grow and progress through life, the brain grows and develops. And there are these stages. We are meant to have stages at certain points for a certain reason. So we are born, we have what are called primitive reflexes. Seems to be a bit more understanding of the significance of primitive reflexes now I think there's a bit of a movement um I do believe it is because of the functional developmental um practitioners that uh we are becoming more known um I think there's a big push for people to understand how significant primitive reflexes are we are born with them for a reason they Mm -hmm. assist us in utero to move They assist us to come down the birth canal, come out into the world, and then every developmental milestone in that first year in particular, we're looking at these reflexes in that first year, we're meant to roll at a certain time, we're meant to sit at a certain time, we're meant to creep and crawl at a certain time, we're meant to stand, and then we're meant to walk. If we're not hitting those milestones, we need to know why. And it's primitive reflexes. If we don't have those reflexes come on at the correct time, it can interfere with coming through the birth canal. So if you don't have an effective, it's called an asymmetric tonic neck reflex. So that's in our neck. It actually helps us to come into the birth canal, engage and turn. It is a reflex that turns our neck. We then have another reflex, a symmetric tonic neck reflex, which turns our head back to the opposite side. Mm. As we come down that birth canal, we're wiggling. So there's a reflex in along our spine called the spinal gallant reflex, and that helps us to wiggle down. So we're wiggling down the birth canal. We're twisting and turning. So these reflexes are actually there to help us effectively and safely come into the world. Those reflexes that bring us into the world should go away at a certain time. And then another reflex should come on in its place and take over 
until we've, you know, let's just say with crawling. So that asymmetric tonic reflex that helps us come down the birth canal turning, when we crawl, that bilateral movement, that integrates. So that reflex goes away into the background. Mm. So if these come on at the correct time and they, you know, quote unquote, go away at the correct time or fade into the background, our development is smooth and clean. We don't have these delayed milestones. So crawling, like the CDC came out last year (laughs) saying that we don't need to crawl anymore. That, you know, over 50% of the population don't crawl. So we don't need to do that anymore. It's it's irrelevant. Mm. So why have we done it? <laughs> why have we always crawled? Why have we always, and if we don't crawl effectively, why is it those children that end up with developmental disorders? So yeah. we're kind of, it seems to be this, the way the world is going is just being okay with things being not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, especially that first year, you know, if your child's not, making eye contact with you that it's called the social engagement system we need our social engagement system if that's not there we're not feeling our body and if we're Mm -hmm. not feeling our body we can't learn to talk we can't learn to communicate we can't learn to crawl we can't walk um we're meant to have these things happen at the right time for the right reason and i guess that comes back to sort of nervous system regulation as well yeah. social engagement yeah. system in my small amount of study that I've done on the vagus nerve but um <laughs> I do know about the social engagement yeah. system and how important yeah. that is so yeah. yeah that's so fascinating so just yeah. quickly on the birth canal so what about babies that are born by c-section so yeah. and they're not obviously using that yeah reflex or the primitive reflex in the beginning does that have any impact it can definitely definitely so sometimes you know there's these emergency cesareans that take place because the baby is you know stuck is the baby stuck because that reflex didn't actually kick in properly and they couldn't come down the birth canal um it's it's like the gut microbiome, you know, if the baby doesn't come down the vaginal canal and come out into the world, you know, they, they don't get that bacteria and they're not, it's, it's the same when you have that cesarean, those reflexes aren't being used correctly. So is it that, you know, was it a planned cesarean for whatever reason? Um, did the baby have to be removed, you know, an emergency um, that's something I always ask. Was it an emergency cesarean? Because it could be that those reflexes didn't kick in um, or that one reflex took over too much and then mm. this baby's not able to move effectively to come through into the world. Or, you know, was it a planned cesarean for whatever reason? These things have to happen, you know. Mm, I had happen. a planned cesarean yeah. for health yeah reasons yeah um and I remember it has to happen sometimes yeah it did and we ended up seeing a chiropractor with my little girl six weeks after she was born and then he referred us to a craniosacral therapist yeah um just for your reflux and um sleep issues but because she didn't come out in the the traditional method so I guess 
you know, obviously had to happen, but yeah, those first couple of appointments that we had with the chiro and with the craniosacral therapist Mm. helped massively. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously she didn't um, have those primitive reflexes switched on through the birth canal. She's absolutely fine now, but, um, you know, it's just something to be aware of, I guess. Definitely. Because I I know I had no idea about these things. Mm. Um, Both my children reached all their milestones early. That's another thing to look for. You know, are they walking too early? Mm. Um, I, I hear that a lot. It's either, you know, my child didn't walk or it's the polar opposite where, oh, my child walked at like seven months. I might please push them back on the floor, (laughs) encourage crawling for as long as possible. You know, like we're not meant to walk until 12 months. Mm. And there's a reason for that. We're meant to have that bilateral movement for a very specific amount of time. Um, Another great reflex that I like to explain to people who are interested in listening, I could go on for days with with what we do, but... uh, so the rooting or suckling reflex, which is in the cheek, a lot of mums, sorry, a lot of mums in particular will know this one. So you touch the cheek and the baby will turn and the mouth will open and they latch onto the breast. A lot of children who have feeding issues don't have a rooting or suckling reflex. You touch their cheek and they're not turning. Yeah, right. So they don't have that there. We need to bring that on. We need to stimulate that cheek and that lip until that reflex comes on so they can actually turn and mm. latch and attach. So, you know, attachment and latch and attachment issues can be a primitive reflex. Um, yeah, that's fascinating because, I mean, so many mums battle with, yeah, you know, myself. breastfeeding and, yeah. and the difficulties. That can, yeah, yeah. So how would the Melillo method aim to work with that particular reflex, for example? Yeah. Okay. So what we're doing um, to assist the reflexes to integrate or, you know, fade into the background, we use vibration. Um, We use lasers as well. So photobiomodulation, if you want the big term of laser Mm. therapy. Um, So we're using the sensory systems to activate those reflexes. So if the reflex hasn't come on, so if I'm dealing with a young child and that reflex has not come on, I use a tool that's called a Resimax pain tuner. Um, It, a lot of the kids call it Dumbo. So it's kind of this, I wish I actually had it with me. So it's a device, um, a vibration tool with these little wings on the side, but I'm using it and I'm just vibrating along that face and activating until I see that child actually turn their head and start to attach. But, you know, there's, there's children we work with that have nonverbal autism and they still have that reflex that should be long gone. You know, I'm dealing with an eight or nine, 10 year old nonverbal child and you touch their face, they turn, some of them actually, you know, a mouthing or trying to grab on with their mouth. So that reflex is too strong. So they're not able to speak correctly because they can't feel their body effectively. Mm. So using the vibration on the actual reflex and then using lasers as well to stimulate the specific networks of the brain. Um, I look at the cerebellum a lot as well at the back. So amplifying the cerebellum, amplifying the opposite cortex, um, 
while using the vibration, smell, sound as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's basically just a sensory integrative therapy. So the example that you just used, the eight or nine-year-old child that still had that reflex of turning the head. Yeah. Why would that not have gone away? So many reasons. Um, I think genetics and epigenetics have a lot to do with it. Stress, so environmental stress, environmental toxins, um, yeah. you know, our, our bodies are bombarded with things that, you know, are very new to the world. <laughs> the chemical loads, you know, a great example I give to people is glyphosate, you know, Roundup. Mm-hmm. That's so new in our human history, in the world's mm-hmm. history. It's in and we're everything. Only just starting, yeah, we're starting only now to understand the impact it has on our gut and mimicking chemicals that produce other chemicals. And then those chemicals come up to your brain. They affect the way your brain is producing chemicals. So it's, there are so many reasons why. Um, I wish I could say to a parent, you know, they come in with a nonverbal child or a child with autism, um, OCD, tics, Tourette's. I wish I could sit there and say it was just this one thing. Um, because parents take blame. They always blame themselves. Um, always try and reassure parents it's gotten it's not your fault. It's no one's fault. These things happen. We all have a great example with autism. It can take nine to 11 generations for autism to show up as autism. Wow. So, yeah. And the reason for that, genetics, um, family trauma, so inherited trauma. So there's all these things that, yeah, and our genes, you know, I don't like saying epigenetics are just genes that switch on and off. I think that's very basic and simple. But for this particular situation on this podcast, we'll just go these epigenetics are genes that are switched off and on through trauma, through environmental stress, toxic load, combination of all of the above, um, mold. Mold is huge um, and what that does to the gut and the brain is phenomenal. Um, and just infection. Infections can inflame the brain stem. Mm. And that brain stem is where our primitive reflexes lay. Mm-hmm. So sometimes those reflexes go away, but then through trauma, whether it be, you know, a, a viral load, a bacterial load, physical trauma, something that happens, you know, childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences can switch these reflexes back on. Mm-hmm. And I think so when we're, we're talking about trauma, I think mm. there's a lot of people out there that um, they associate trauma with being, you know, being in a war or, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, something horrific, but, you know, trauma doesn't have to be, no a huge event like that it's it's really how the body um you know processes whatever event is happening to them and the meaning that they create from that event so it can be big trauma and little trauma so it doesn't have to be you know I know a lot of people are like oh I you know my childhood was great it was you know loving parents (laughs) everything was cool but um 
you know, I think a lot of people do in fact have some trauma. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, that probably plays a part in what you're talking about. Definitely. And I try to explain to people trauma is a perception. It is how our brain is perceiving an experience. Um, I, I call it the paper cut analogy. You know, mm-hmm. some people, they can experience a paper cut and it's a, it's a paper cut. That's okay. It's going to heal. But then you've got other people that experience the same paper cut in the same situation, but because they have a retained fear paralysis reflex, that paper cut happens and their body goes into freeze or fawn, shutdown mode or flight and fight. Um, So then our body has this visceral response to what's going on. You know, I've worked with children who faint. They have a fainting disorder. It's been given one label. They come in and I'm explaining to them, you know, the label is a label. Um, I'm not looking at that label. I'm looking at what reflexes are present. And if there is a fear paralysis reflex, um, the way I check for that is I'll come up behind someone and I'll clap my hands really loud. Do they startle? You know, it's like that startle reflex in babies. Mm -hmm. It's called a moreau or startle reflex. Before that reflex comes on, we have a fear paralysis reflex to keep us alive in utero, keeps our heart rate high but that should integrate into a morose startle reflex. And that's when little babies, you see their hands fly up. Mm. You know, if you drop them, um, not drop them, but you know. <laughs> yeah, if you... <laughs> I should explain what that drop means when you're holding them and you drop them backwards and the yeah. arms fly up. I'll do not that. on the ground. <laughs> yeah, not dropping your baby, please. Goodness. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, you're looking for these body... This, this body response, the visceral response, um, what are their pupils doing? Mm-hmm. You know, one pupil might be larger than the other. I'm looking at their body. Are they inflection or extension? Is Are their arms turned inwards or are their arms out? Are they standing tall? What, what's their posture? Because that's the next level. After your primitive reflexes, you've got to work on your core and your postural tone and strength and stamina. Because the stronger your core and your postural tone, the stronger that signal to your brain. You know, you've got all these little muscle spindles that are sending information through to the spine, which goes straight up to your brain stem, which then comes up into your brain and gets processed as your body. But if you can't feel your body properly because you have retained primitive reflexes and your posture is not so great because you don't have great tone, it didn't develop effectively, because the signal from your brainstem to your joint, your muscle, isn't effective, we're going to have slower movement or uncoordinated movement. Um, Kids who run into things all the time will trip over. It's funny, you know, but when you actually understand what's going on, it's, okay, well, your brain's not feeling the body effectively. Why Mm. is that? Well, you've got primitive reflexes. You look at the core, they can't do five sit-ups. You know, these kids should be able to do a lot of sit-ups. Mm-hmm. I quite often see two, three sit-ups and I'm having to assist them. It's called a hands-pulling reflex where you hold their hand and pull them up and their head's lagging. They don't have 
strength to hold and support their neck on top of their spine. Yeah. Um, you know, that then impacts, yeah, it impacts your inner ears. So then you're looking at the, the otoliths in your ears and your vestibular system. So your forwards and backwards up and down motion, your spinning motion. If those systems aren't built correctly because you don't have the correct core and postural tone because you've got primitive reflexes, okay, well, what's the next system that builds on top of your inner ears? It's your visual systems. So all, all of, connected. All of it, it all has to build in a specific time and manner and if it doesn't build properly, you know, dyslexia. Dyslexia is something I see a lot. Is it dyslexia? Sometimes it is because that, that's an actual physical difference in the brain. Different areas are a different size and it's usually swap. It's on the wrong hemisphere. Um, yeah. And or, that probably... or is it processing disorder? You know, is, yeah. is it because? They're not feeling their body. Their eyes aren't tracking effectively. So the words move and bob around. Um, and generally that's a right hemisphere overactivity. If if there's a dyslexic kind of tendency, whereas your tics, Tourette's, autism are a left hemisphere dominance and overactivity in that hemisphere. So once we've looked at the primitive reflexes and we've looked through all the things we then look at the hemispheres and go okay which hemisphere is over firing and mm-hmm. which hemisphere is under firing and what is that cerebellum doing at the back which connects in with those hemispheres on the opposite network so it's yeah. just out of yeah. interest mm. what side of the brain would you say ocd is more related to an overactivity in the left basal ganglia on the, the left hemisphere. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. everyone probably knows I have been diagnosed with OCD. Yeah. Um, and as a kid I had tics yep. as well. Yeah. So is that they're same two loop. different sites or the same? The same loop. The same. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would blink a lot as a child Yeah. and I would click my jaw all the time as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and these are stereotypical movements, right? We're meant to have these movements. So quite often with tics, you know, it's it's something like a vocal tic, you know, clearing the throat or, you know, like you're saying, blinking your eyes. These are, these are stereotypical movements. We're meant to have these movements. But what's happening is this loop through the basal ganglia, which are a set of nuclei, in, in the hemispheres, they're overactive. So there's certain pathways. So in, in one hemisphere, you've got an indirect and a hyperdirect pathway. And then in the opposite hemisphere, you've got a direct pathway. Um, and I won't go into too much of that because it, it, it's a bit complex. But mm-hmm. in a nutshell, your left hemisphere is holding one specific pathway. And it should come through these loops effectively. It should come, you know, on, off, on, off kind of thing. If you've got too much activation in that left hemisphere, there's going to be too much motivation. So there's going to be too much on and not enough off. So the left hemisphere is about, I call it the doing brain, the motivation brain, whereas the right hemisphere is the inhibition brain. That right hemisphere comes in and oversees what that left hemisphere is doing and says, ah, 
dude, you're overfiring. We need to switch that off. And mm. it's an evolutionary adaptation for us to stay safe. So when we have ticks, that's our brain just going into hyperdrive. So mm. how how do we how do we stop that? Do we use medicines and you know treat everyone like the whole brain is being effective when when it's one specific network that needs to be dampened Mm -hmm. so if I have someone come in with that if I have a child come in with a tick immediately I'm like okay we need to ramp up this right hemisphere so how how would you how do you do that (laughs) yeah so (laughs) how do I do that so I'm using the vibration tools so I would be using that down the left side of the body because that information is going to be picked up by the left cerebellum. And then while that's happening, I'm amplifying the right hemisphere. I'm hitting specific networks with the laser. So the orbitofrontal cortex, which is for, you know, emotional regulation and inhibition in particular, I'll hit a laser right on that area while all this information is coming up through that left side of the body, vibration, TENS, TENS pads, things like that. Um, I particularly like vibration because we have specific pathways in our spine that come up to our brain that are specifically for vibration and it heads straight into that sensory motor cortex and it's amplified. So then it, your that hemisphere is picking up that information and going, okay, that's, that's what I'm needing. The frontal lobes grow out of our motor cortex. And I think that's, it's huge movement we are meant to move. We're not meant to be sitting still behind a computer all day. We are meant to move. Movement drives the frontal lobes of our brain mm-hmm. because the frontal lobes of our brain literally grow out of the motor part of our brain. So as the brain grows, you have your brain stem, it grows up, and it kind of grows forwards and back. So it's from the middle and out. But through that midsection, in a nutshell, through that midsection is your motor strip, your sensory motor strip, your motor strip, and then it's growing forward into that prefrontal cortex, which is our executive functioning. It's it's our smart brain. It's what comes in and regulates. So if you've got a dysregulation, you, you've got a child who has a behavioral issue, emotional meltdowns, you know, just unable to regulate Are you expecting that child, if you sit them down and say, okay, you need to stop flapping and you need to stop, you know, I've had one child who hit their head on the wall, put holes in the wall. How do you expect that child to do that if they don't have the frontal lobes grown and developed to do that? Mm. And they're doing that because they can't actually feel their body. They're trying to feel their body. They're trying to regulate through self-harm or they're trying to regulate through flapping. You know, they're trying to feel their body, these stereotypical behaviours, you know. It's fascinating. It's phenomenal when you see the sensory system actually kick in and you see that child able to regulate. Mm. We see snippets of regulation. You know, the parent will come in a couple of weeks later and they say, oh, you know, the meltdowns aren't as bad. You know, they're, they're no longer putting holes in the wall. They're no longer smashing windows. Um, they're able to just scream and shout. 
you know, that that's that's huge for those parents. When you know, previously, just, you know, that child might have just been labelled as a really difficult, naughty yeah, child. Yeah, like ADHD in a classroom. Mm. And that, yeah. yeah, that's something I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we huge. get to that, though, I just wanted to yeah. ask sort of what, uh, I know we've mentioned quite a few of them, but what are the types of neurodevelopmental behavioural imbalances that the Melillo method actually works with? Like what's a, is there a bit of a list that you would work with? To be honest, if you're looking at the brain and there is an imbalance, movement is going to help no matter what. So a lot of what I prescribed for families and Melillo method practitioners prescribe for families is movement-based therapy. So it is sit-ups, push-ups, wheelbarrows. It's looking at spinning, using essential oils to drive the sensory systems to light up specific networks in in there. Um, We're also looking at visual, visual tracking. So using different apps, I always say to parents, there's an app for that because there, there actually is. There are very, very simple apps that you can use for visual tracking. Mm-hmm. That alone is going to stimulate the correct hemisphere as well. Yeah. Um, and so, so the, ma- the main, I look at childhood neurological disorders and that's my training. So that's, that's you know, autism is huge. Um, ADHD. And the different types of ADHD. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at tics, Tourette's, dyslexia, visual tracking issues, yeah, depression, OCD, OCD depression, anxiety is huge at the moment as well. Um, and then, you know, what stems from depression and anxiety, suicidal tendencies. So we're literally looking at where the brain is in development. Mm-hmm. And taking that child back to that back to that stage, and we check from those primitive reflexes. If there's a primitive reflex there, so we check eight in particular. So we've got that morose startle reflex, asymmetric tonic neck reflex, symmetric tonic neck reflex, spinal gland tonic labyrinthine reflex, the rooting suckling reflex, and Babinski reflex, which is on the bottom of the foot. Um, a lot of people don't realize how significant a Babinski is. I see it so often. Um, I've been kicked in the face a few times checking it because I just, you know, quickly checking something and I forget to pull my head back. But the person has, or the child has such a strong response, their entire foot and knee retracts back. That child can't feel the ground effectively. So if you can't feel the ground effectively, and you can't process where you're meant to be walking, how's your posture going to be? Are you going to have a forward head posture and you're going to be leaning forward, walking on your tippy toes? Most likely. Mm, Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And that leads into all of those disorders that we're talking about. Mm. And, yeah, I guess I I wanted to talk about ADHD because... I feel like more and more kids are being diagnosed with ADHD Mm. and I've actually found more and more adults as well have in my life. I don't know if that's just coincidence, but it feels like everyone's been diagnosed with ADHD in the last couple of years. Yeah. 
Um, how does the Melillo method view and specifically aim to treat a diagnosis of ADHD? Mm-hmm. Yep. So when we have anyone come through, any medical diagnosis they've been given, we take it into account. But quite often what we're seeing is a very different landscape. So if a child comes in with ADHD, what type? Is it type one because it's inattentive? So they daydream. They just can't stay focused and stay on track. They're kind of there's no real behavioural issue. So the child will just kind of daydream. Is it type two where there is the hyperactivity? They're generally the kids that are diagnosed really easily um, because they can't sit still. Is it ADHD or is that a spinal gallant reflex that's still retained, by the way? Um, very, very strongly linked because they can't sit still. They're wiggling, got ants in their pants. Mm. We remove that reflex and quite often those behaviours reduce significantly. It's, you know, like nine times out of ten. Um, and then with ADHD, is it type three, which is combined inattentive and hyperactivity? Um, quite often parents will come in, oh, my child has ADHD. I'm like, well, did they explain what type of ADHD? Um, because it actually affects different networks of the brain, different hemispheres, to be quite honest. So type one, so that attention deficit disorder. So the daydreaming, no hyperactivity, no real. These kids generally fly under the radar. Um, my children both flew under the radar because they're great kids. They wouldn't make issues in a classroom. There was no hyperactivity. They could sit still. In fact, they could sit still way too easily. <laughs> mm. And I guess it's usually the hyperactive kids that end up in timeout yeah. or being Yeah, yeah. They're, they're the ones that are, yeah, punished constantly. So is it ADD, so type 1, which is a right hemisphere overactivity? Is it type 2 where there's that hyperactivity? That's a left hemisphere overactivity. Is it type three combined where it's both hemispheres are being affected? Um, Generally, parents can't answer that because the doctors haven't told them what type of ADHD. They've given them a label. They've sent them to, usually it has to be a psychiatrist. There has been one situation where a GP had just given prescription medicine for an ADHD diagnosis but generally the, the children are going to a psychiatrist and it's Ritalin or Vyvanse are generally the two that I see. Um, so if it's what I see very regularly, if it is um, attention deficit disorder, so the type 1, so right hemisphere overactivity, the medications seem to really help and there's not a lot of side effects just from what I see. Um, there's no science behind what I'm saying there. That is clinical observation. Mm-hmm. When it's type two, quite often what I'm seeing is speech is in, interrupted and interfered with. You know, you've got a fully functioning kid with who's super hyperactive, can't sit still, can't focus, you know, like a fly to window. They're sort of buzzing here and they're buzzing over here and they they can't focus their attention because they've got so much left hemisphere overactivity. So the left hemisphere is about 
focused details right here, right now. What is this? And they can focus right in. Whereas the right brain is more the big picture, being able to see long-term consequences for things rather than the short-term, you know, that dopamine hit that now, now, now. So if that child has ADHD type two and they've got that left hemisphere overactivity, when they are given medications, they're not as effective. Uh, Speech is slurred. Um, That's the main thing I see. Speech seems to be interfered with. Um, They, they lose their spark. Mm. They're not, they're not quite the same. They're numbed. Um, And so kids seems to be just fine. But when speech is affected, why is that speech affected? Because mm. the broca's area in the left hemisphere is being dampened. It's it's not able to get the correct signal through. So then so often the kids effectively. who are put on this medication, they're not told which type no. of ADHD typically. No. Yeah, okay. No. A lot of a lot of the parents that I'm talking to them say, so did they explain what your type of ADHD? What what do you mean type? And I go through and I explain that the right hemisphere, the left hemisphere, you know, are combined. Because um, if there's a combined ADHD, I've got to be careful what kind of networks I'm stimulating because it's affecting both hemispheres equally. Mm. Um, so it's it's interesting to see that, and I don't I don't even know. Like a lot of children, their nervous system is not built for a classroom those children need to be outdoors a lot more, mm-hmm. a lot more. Um, it's a whole other, could be another podcast episode. The education system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've homeschooled my eldest for four years now because the system hasn't worked. You know, there, there were too many barriers of why we can't help why we can't do this. We need, we need labels. We need all these things. We need reports to be able to support your child. Mm. You know, like why, why does a child need to have a label like that? If, if we're just looking at things from a very basic level, some children just need extra support. There's a hundred ways to learn. So let's support all the kids the way they need to be supported Absolutely. Yeah, how do we do parents, that? Change the system. Yeah. Yeah. To listen to our gut when it comes to our children. Yeah. You know, what Definitely. works for one child might not be working for it, another and that's okay. Not, There's no. nothing wrong with them. No. And that's that's just it. It's just they need to learn a different way. Mm. Take the pressure off their nervous system for a time. You know, is a classroom environment too overwhelming? because they're in flight and fight or freeze and fawn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that we've been discussing in our household of recent years with our yeah. own daughter as well. Yeah. But we could be here all day if we go down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's just it's good to raise that issue and just mm-hmm. um, as parents to really back ourselves and to yes. realise that we have 
children that are all very different and unique and what works for some isn't going to work for all children. Definitely. Um, The other question I wanted to ask, I think in recent years we've been hearing the terms neurodiverse and neurotypical thrown around a lot. And I just wondered if you were able to explain what that means and whether these labels are beneficial or just your thoughts on those terms. Yeah. Um, I think there is a typical brain and a non-typical brain, but I think there's a massive rainbow of difference between the two of them as well. Um, Is someone unable to process incoming stimulus, so light, sound, you know, the perception of someone's talking to them? Are they able to read the body language effectively? Um, If they can't process effectively sound light um if they can't process a social situation why is that you know going back again the same thing again have they got primitive reflexes there has there been some kind of viral load that has affected the brain stem that's inhibiting these reflexes or bringing them back um I think the label of neurodiversity is definitely needed mm-hmm. uh, just from our own experience with our children um, and being for people to understand that their brain looks different. But I think people need to understand why mm. and that there is actually help and there's ways for the brain to learn to calm the sensory system there are ways that we can it doesn't mean that you know someone who's been given a label of autism doesn't mean that working through all of these things will remove that label but will it make their life easier because they're not getting so incredibly overwhelmed by incoming stimulus absolutely um Mm -hmm. you know if if you're given, like parents, their children are given these labels of nonverbal autism. I've been working in with nurturing brain potential in Brisbane and Dr. Genevieve in the last three years has got almost 30 children speaking. Wow. Using the auto method, using functional neurology. You know, it's it can be overcome when you're effectively targeting the correct networks in the brain. Mm. Some kids can bring, you know, one little girl I worked with within four and a half weeks, she was saying two words. She went from nonverbal to two words, you know, and then the system has built from there. Dr. Jen, she's had the same things happen, you know, and she's she's like the master of nonverbal autism, to be honest. It's phenomenal what Mm. she's doing and, and what she's been able to share with me and teach me as well. When you see these labels being overcome on a daily basis, it's hard to buy into labels. Mm-hmm. It's a permanent disab- disability. Um, I choke on the word disability every time pretty much. It's just this, 
you know, these parents come in and they've been through all of, they've been through speech therapy and OT and they've gotten to a certain point, but the child still isn't speaking. And they come to you and they're like, you know, this is our last, this is it. This is our last hope. And then within a few months or, you know, some children, it takes longer. I don't know exactly why that is, you know, whether it's underlying infection and things like that, that we have to remove first. Um, but most children come in within a few months, they're saying a word or two. They start and that once their social engagement system kicks in because they can feel their body effectively, they're then able to talk and then the systems just seem to build and flow from there. Mm, you know, incredible. so, but I do know, you know, I've got adult friends, women who have been diagnosed autism in their 40s. And they're like, if I had have known this earlier in my life, I wouldn't have suffered. And I'm talking tremendous suffering. Mm. Like women with autism, undiagnosed, they have a shorter lifespan. Generally with females with autism, you're seeing Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, so connective tissue disorders. Um, You're seeing mast cell activation syndrome. So, you know, the cells are attacking the body, these autoimmune dysfunctions, because their brain hasn't been able to come in and regulate the immune system effectively. Is there genetics involved? Absolutely. You know, just my own personal friendships. I'm I'm seeing the end with one particular friend who's really, really unwell. And it's from not having the correct diagnosis. So all of these issues have gone on for 40 odd years and getting a diagnosis in early forties and going, oh, okay. So my eating disorder, it wasn't because I, you know, had mental health issues. It's actually because I had autism and my brain was processing the taste and sensation of food incorrectly. I didn't want to eat anything. I hated eating because it felt awful in my mouth and then I'd feel sick and I'd want to be sick. And, Mm. you know, anorexia is the adult version of not wanting to eat effectively when she was younger, you know, and just seeing the aftermath of these childhood neurological disorders that haven't been worked through and dealt with effectively, they've been masked or not even diagnosed correctly. They turn into mental health disorders mm-hmm. as adults you know which is yeah absolutely what I've experienced in my life yeah. having been diagnosed yeah. with OCD at the age of 35 when yeah. I had it since I my earliest memory which was OCD related yeah. was age five yeah. and my entire life I was told that I was just a really anxious child really sensitive and I worried too much so I grew up with those labels that there was something wrong with me um not realizing that obviously OCD there's a bit of an imbalance in my brain yeah (laughs) just a little left heavy (laughs) yeah yeah oh yeah it's it's sad that these diagnoses are happening so late in life yeah Um, but I guess yeah with with my OCD it was you could very easily think that it was anxiety and that's yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. definitely. 
when anxiety that that level of anxiety is a left hemisphere overactivation as well um so if you're able to dampen those networks from building up the opposite hemisphere in the correct developmental way those those issues subside substantially you know for some people the the issues don't go away but they're manageable they're not as overwhelming you know they can leave the house because they don't have to wear gloves or wash their hands 50 million times when they're out and about or you know they don't have to check that the door is locked 50 million times you know and that it's a it's a very specific type of anxiety mm. but it's it's almost like women in particular just seem to be gaslit a lot with their health issues um and it's it's definitely people are saying look you know you're you're just anxious you know you're an anxious child or you know with girls in particular you know we've had that experience with our eldest in particular you know they're just they're just too emotional <laughs> and they're just you feel and, too much <laughs> yeah why don't you just you know just start eating animals you know, like they're vegetarian for a reason. They the the empathy that you know that salience mm-hmm. network in the brain that's checking and scoping for anything that's coming. I call it the saber toothed tiger network because it's so primitive and it, it's there to protect us. But if you're stuck in that and your nervous system isn't firing effectively and it's overwhelmed you're going to have these issues that come through, you know, mm-hmm. and it would just be lovely if if people could actually understand that there's more, that movement in particular, you know, there's so much science going into exercise and, you know, how it affects your brain, but your muscles produce those chemicals too, those muscles are sending information to your brain and alerting it of, you know, your your proprioceptive system. So you know where your body is in space and time. Your interoceptive system, you can feel what's actually going in inside and going on inside of you. So when you're able to integrate these, these networks correctly, you're not running away from a saber-toothed tiger all the time. You're not in that limbic prehistoric brain. Um, mm. one, of, one of my mentors calls it the asshole amygdala <laughs> because it's constantly on the lookout, constantly on the lookout. Mm-hmm. How, imagine having more regulation because you can feel your body effectively. The signal is going to, to and from your brain correctly so mm. you can actually perceive what's really going on around you. Your perception isn't altered. You're not constantly on high alert. You're actually feeling calm. You don't feel like everyone's out to attack you. Mm-hmm. Like it just. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I think. It's a nice world to live in. It would be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's just been such an important conversation to have and it's really going to help people see that there is 
there's so much more to it usually than what we've often been led to believe. And if you feel like there's more to it, then, you know, follow that and explore it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking medication, you know, it works for some. If it's not working, then maybe explore something else or maybe explore something in conjunction with medication. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But just to finish off I think this is an important one if you could give one piece of advice to parents who are maybe navigating one of these types of um, behaviors or developmental diagnoses within their family and, and their children what would that be there is hope I think that's something that is stripped away very early on when you have a child who doesn't fit in the system um who is outside of the box i think the biggest thing i see daily and even from our own personal journey there is hope there are other alternative ways and I don't even like calling it alternative because this is backed by science there's heavy heavy evidence everything we do is Mm evidence-based everything um but for whatever reason we're viewed as alternative so we'll just stick to that well the fact that chiropractic care is viewed as alternative as well I mean it's just yeah beyond me but (laughs) yes yeah. Oh, that that's a whole nother conversation. We'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's wild. But um, don't lose hope and keep looking. Look into Malillo Method. Read Disconnected Kids. That's where I started. Just reading that book alone made me understand. I was like, oh, that's why. Because there is a why. It's not, you know, these chemical signals that, you know, need to be amplified or dampened with medications, sometimes it absolutely is necessary. Yes. And I'm not against medication. I need to just be very clear about that. Very clear. Yeah. Um, Neither am I. Um. (laughs) Yeah. We've we've used in our own family as well on our journey. Mm. We no longer have to participate with medications anymore because the brains are working and firing effectively. But look into Malala Method look into developmental functional neurology. There are some really incredible practitioners. So Dr. Robert Melillo, Dr. Brandon Crawford, Dr. Kyle Daigle, Dr. Genevieve, myself. I don't really do Instagram too much, but. I was just going to ask, where can people find you on the Sunshine Coast? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm, I'm at the Resilience Hub in Nambour. So spiral healing rooms that I'm working in with uh, refocus so they're a first nations based organization but you know we see everybody as well um and look into these other ways of healing um there is definitely merit to anything i believe i think if if you've stumbled across something look into it and don't lose hope mm. because there there is help um and, and I guess it's from, not one or the other, is it? No. Like we could all work in together in harmony. <laughs> that would be amazing. And that that's that's my goal. 
working in with Refocus and they have a medical centre attached as well, a, a traditional allopathic medical GPs. Um, you know, it's it's working in with everybody and getting everyone to work in together. Mm-hmm. You know, I am not a doctor, so I can't order bloods and things, but I can work one area while they're working another area. Exactly. There's a place for both. And yeah. I think... I mean, that is, that's the dream, isn't it? That we're all working together in harmony and we're all respectful of the various modalities that are out there that help people in different ways. And like what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for another and it doesn't have to be one method over another. Exactly, exactly. And even with developmental functional neurology, there's many different ways of doing that as well. You know, there's different certifications within that field and Malolo method is what I've studied and it's a very specific method. There's the Carrick Institute. They've got a specific method, but ultimately we are all on the same drive, on the same cause, mm-hmm. trying to build the brain from the bottom up yeah. and, and build it effectively. Yeah, but the main message, don't lose hope and keep an open mind look at the holistic options, even when you've got a doctor telling you, no, 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 (laughs) you just don't know, you know, you just don't know what is going to work for your child. Um, Mm -hmm. Our experience, it was the alternative things that, that have led us to healing and overcoming significant health issues. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it is all about having that open mind because I think when you hear the term alternative therapies, you're like, oh, woo-woo yeah. stuff that's not backed by yeah. science when it's just yeah. not the case. So yeah, yeah have an open mind. That you're a quack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just go try it for yourself. And if it doesn't yeah. work for you, then that's totally fine. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, look at where you are now and where your daughter is now because you yeah. went out and you searched for answers because you weren't yeah. getting the ones that you needed. No. And it's it's there are there are so many other ways of doing things. And I think, you know, even what's worked for us, you know, may not work for other people. The way we've gone about doing our our journey is not going to be very, it's like breath work, <laughs> you know. Breath work works brilliantly for some people because their nervous system's ready for that. Other people, you've got to build into that. You know, I, it, it caused a panic attack in me. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was not ready for breath work when I first started. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know that now about my yeah. body. But yeah, again, you know, breath work, like you said, isn't going to be the first point of call for everybody. Yeah. And it might be for some. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's healing is so individual based on so many factors. Thank you for this. You. It's most welcome. Thank you. It's been so nice amazing. It's been, it's been years. I feel like <laughs> it went very quick, though. It did. Well, I feel like yeah. the last couple of years have just um, yeah. all merged into one, and it feels like a I don't know, like a lifetime ago. But then it went super yeah. fast. Yeah, it was a strange time. You've, you've had a lot on in that time. <laughs> I have, I have. Yeah. <laughs> but here we are, we're talking about yeah. the things that aren't necessarily spoken about 
And I think that for my journey in particular, I needed these conversations and I want to bring them to others who might need them as well. Thank you. Thank you for acknowledging that the world needs these conversations. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for making um, it happen. It's amazing. Thank you. Huge, huge. Well, I guess, yeah, if anyone's interested in learning about this particular method, there's, you know, you've you've shared a lot of different resources. Um, I'll put some information in the show notes as well for people to explore. Yeah. Um, But thank you for just bringing us your incredible story and it's just amazing what you have achieved through so much trauma and diversity. It's just absolutely amazing and you're just going to go on and help so many other families who are in similar situations so it's it's a passion I love it (laughs) I love love my job (laughs) yeah quotation marks (laughs) marks. (laughs) all right thanks Alice chat again soon thanks Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode and found something juicy in its content that you can take away with you today. Thank you so much for listening and choosing to be here with me as a member of my audience. I feel truly honored to be sharing this content and energy with you. If you did find value in what was shared with you today, can I please ask this one thing of you? Share the episode on your socials, tagging me at humanlydesigned underscore so we can reach more people with these important messages. And don't forget to drop me a DM and say hi. I literally love connecting with you all and hearing all about your unique human experiences. Until next time.